We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. Season 2, Episode 38. Today we speak with Dr. Brian Loff, who is the Founding Program Director of the Developing Physician Assistant Studies Program at the University of Nevada Renal School of Medicine. Brian is a 1997 graduate of the Charter Class at Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland, Oregon. He is a PA who's practiced in rural medicine, he has led in industry, and he has led a PA school for the past several years. Brian and I talk about the benefits of their program as the only state-sponsored program in the state of Nevada. We talk about rural medicine, and we talk about leadership in the PA profession and discuss where the profession is heading. We hope you enjoy this session. Hey, Brian. Hey there. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good for a Friday. Uh, Yeah, happy Friday. Happy Friday. Thank you very much for doing this. We really appreciate the opportunity to highlight your program. Yeah, I feel uh, honored that I was asked, and I think it does uh, a great service to your listeners to kind of get those wide perspectives. Excellent. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to learn about the University of Nevada Renal School of Medicine PA School, your studies program, and also about your path to becoming a PA and, and, and some of the leadership things that you've done in your career as well. Let's start by learning about you first. So tell us how you ended up becoming a PA. Yes. Well, first, I want to say thank you. I'm incredibly grateful for the invitation and to be a part of this vital project and share my story alongside some of the greats of your former guests, uh, including Stefan yourself. It's a great honor to be able to come today and talk with you. Thank you. It's very kind. Thanks. Yes. Uh, Also, as a listener, I have learned so much about the PA profession listening to your podcast and I've been in this profession for 25 years, but I must say I've learned so much and I can only imagine what the prospective students are feeling after listening to these. So again, thank you for all you do. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, my story, I'll try to condense it down, uh, becoming a PA. We all have our unique stories. And I think that's important to prospective students is to understand that we come from a variety of backgrounds and that's what makes us so great in my opinion. So I grew up here in Reno, Nevada, and a single mom, a low socioeconomic situation, went to high school where college was not really discussed. It was finish high school, get into the workforce, and off you go. So I, I took off the days of SAT and ACT and the ASVAB, figuring this is a free day to kind of go out and head to the lake or do something fun. College was not in the mindset for me. In fact, I was a first-generation graduate as well. My father went to eighth grade. So education was never stressed as something that you should pursue. 
somehow, uh, senior year or junior year in high school, I landed a summer internship at the local VA doing EKGs. And during that time, I was so fortunate to meet several veterans. And during that time, uh, I learned profound lessons, not only uh, in medicine that I can reflect on, but just as a person and, and as a PA. One of the things going into the rooms every day to these veterans, they taught me a lot about one, being a man, about being a professional, about being uh, now veteran. Uh, so it really interested my, or it, it increased my interest in the military. And, and finally, just wearing a white coat, wearing, wearing a beeper was super cool as an 18 year old. So that to me was the biggest attraction. I can't argue with that. That That is, it's pretty cool. Yes. So that, that kind of, pushed me in a direction of the military. Uh, so long story short, I went into the military, had no idea what I was going to do. And the day that they were handing out jobs, they were security police or medics. And I said, oh, well, I'll be a medic, I guess. And so that was where my medicine path began. I spent two years in Turkey. And I cried when I found out I was going to Turkey because I really didn't know where I was. But it was the best two years of my life. As with many things, the benefits of it are hidden until you experience them. And I say that often about the PA profession. You experience it, and then you understand how great it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was exposed to IDMTs, which is independent duty medical technicians. So these are kind of the early PAs of the military. And uh, I thought that, again, was super cool. And they got to wear a stethoscope, suture people up. So these were things I was interested in. And someone told me you should consider PA school in the military. And I looked into it and I got the story of sign up for another four years and we'll talk about it. And I had heard that story many times in the military. And I said, without a guarantee, I'm going to take my GI Bill and head back home and uh, pursue it through the civilian world. And then returning back to Reno, uh, again, not prepared for college, uh, very underprepared for college, in fact, academically, and just just didn't understand the tools needed to be successful in college. But uh, I I did have the life experiences that gave me the grit to get through it. So I recall going to my professor in English, and she handed my first paper paper back to me and said, we need to talk. And uh, so at that point, I, I took on education very seriously. And said, this is like the military. It's up to me to make a change. I, in for my experience, I worked for a home oxygen company while I went to school. And that's where I expanded my patient interaction skills and uh, applied to PA school once I transferred and finished all my undergraduate prerequisites at the University of Nevada, Reno. I applied to two PA programs and got the common thank you, but no thank you responses. Uh, and I always knew if I could just get an interview, I could convince them to take me. To me, that's where I think students should prepare to shine. Uh, as a program director, that's where I make my final determination is during those interviews. So uh, lo and behold, uh, my microbiology professor at UNR moved to Oregon Health Science University right next to the office of a development PA program at OHSU. <laughs> With Ted Ruback. With Ted Ruback. Yeah. Exactly. Six so degrees said, of separation here. It's it's amazing. It is amazing listening to your podcast, how much we probably have crossed paths professionally uh, in those who we know and associate with. Sure. So that professor sent me an application, paper application, uh, and I filled it out, sent it back. And long story short, I got in my interview and I convinced them to take the only out-of-stater 
for the first class at OHSU, uh, which was 14 students, 11 of us who graduated. Becoming a PA, I returned back to Nevada because I knew that's where I wanted uh, to practice. And I landed a great job in a rural health clinic and spent my first five years there learning all the ins and outs of rural medicine, which uh, if I could develop a course that would have all those experiences and uh, knowledge and pack them into a course, that would be uh, a million dollar seller to PA programs because uh, those experiences uh, are what I think PAs often seek and are having a hard time finding unless you do it in a rural community. And that's interesting for me, Brian, because I've always said that the learning curve for PA school is pretty steep. Your didactic is pretty steep, but then your clinical experiences are even steeper. But then the first few years of practice are really like climbing Mount Everest. And, and that's where you gain all of your confidence and foundational knowledge after you've had a chance to see something maybe 20 times. So it sounds like for you, that first five years in rural medicine really prepared you for life in medicine for that point on. Absolutely. And I would also say prepared me to be a professional, a community that didn't understand what PAs were. So my job, as I tell my students now, it does not begin or end at the bedside or in the exam room. Being a PA is a 24-7 role. It's a profession, and you have to take it on as such. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to return to you all that uh, you expect of it. Fantastic. So you were at the Rural Health Clinic for the first five years, and then what? Yeah, I bounced around. I had an opportunity to join an ENT practice. Again, never had a PA before, so that was a great experience. And in fact, if I had my choice to remain in clinical practice, I would stay in ENT for the rest of my career. I thought it was a great blend of medicine and surgery, procedures, and direct patient care. So for me, it, it was the holy grail of practice, but business things pushed me out and, uh, and I went back to family medicine for a little while and then landed in a, a fantastic opportunity to join a startup company in the uh, healthcare delivery space, if you will. Mm -hmm. That to me was, again, another thing that a lot of PAs experience is other than clinical medicine, you bring and learn along the way skills that, uh, that, that, that I think other clinicians or other professions may not have that wide breadth of exposure. So the startup uh, world was being funded by hedge funds, which we had lots of money to spend, lots of ideas to try to uh, execute. But when that money dried up, so did our ideas along with it. So it pushed me back into clinical practice. But at that point in time, I was uh, nearing the idea of part-time retirement or early retirement. So I went back two days a week in the urgent care and found myself bored and uh, wanting more out of my professional life and ended up doing some operational things with the hospital system, developing new clinics, and then became their uh, information technology champion. Uh, and I tell students and young PAs, that's what's important is being available for those opportunities. And it will lead you in directions that you haven't even imagined yet. So I guess the final leg of this chapter leading up to today was as a practicing PA here in Nevada, since I've returned from Oregon Health Science University, I always knew that we needed a PA program. 
and talked with the School of Medicine since you know, the late 90s about how to make that happen. And after several meetings that really went nowhere, most of the, the challenges were who was going to pay for it? How are we going to bring up the money for it? And what happened is that they had a meeting and they invited a couple of community PAs, including myself, and we had a long discussion about our ideas and what we thought would be best. Uh, and lo and behold, Ruth Baldwig was their consultant leading them through that process, who happened to be one of the consultants for OHSU's development. So sure. again, full circle. And a couple months later at the AAPA conference in San Francisco, Ruth pulled me aside and we had coffee and she says, you're the next BA program director at University of Nevada, Reno. Not asking, but telling me that's what I was going to be doing <laughs> in Ruth's style. <laughs> yeah, she's, she definitely has some chutzpah. Yes, yes. So uh, after the shock wore off and recognizing that I had really, in my own opinion, zero skill sets to do what she was asking me to do, I made her commit to me to be there for me when I needed her along the way. So from there, I uh, took the role, or at least accepted the idea of the role. And what had happened is that the university took about a year to hire me, which is in true fashion for a public institution. And during that year, they gave me the ARC-PA accreditation standards and put me on a plane to PAEA's Program Director 101, and I read that manual cover to cover on my flight to uh, that course. And I should have stopped and returned back to Reno after reading that, uh, knowing that the <laughs> challenges that I faced were innumerable. But I learned a lot at the PAEA Program Director 101, and in fact, I was a repeat attendee the following year. As a slow learner, I needed more information to feel confident in that uh, role. Uh, and then we started a program. Fantastic. So how how rich for you to have grown up in the area, to have become a PA, to practice in the area, and then to kind of be at the point of that startup. That had to be a really rewarding experience for you to get it going. But also talk about bringing in somebody who has some skin in the game, so to speak. You really, I would imagine, were very motivated to see the program become successful. Absolutely. I was extremely honored to even be considered for it. And then, uh, as you mentioned, very passionate about what I thought uh, would be the best structure of a program. Returning to the mentor concept is that Ruth helped me uh, develop the program. But I also have a number of mentors that I've leaned on to build the program, including Ted Ruback. Went back to him and knew that my education was top-notch and figured why not repeat many of the things that I went through as it's been a long-term successful program. Yeah. And to tell the story, obviously, Brian, you're very humble. You, you've got some significant leadership experience beyond the business world. You've been president of the Nevada Academy of PAs. You've been a chief delegate to the AAPA House of Delegates. So you're not new to PA leadership. You're, you just were new at that moment in time to PA education leadership, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And on the topic of leadership, I think many of your guests have discussed this where leaders don't necessarily self-proclaim, that they're often in a, in a situation where they feel like they can contribute. And then they recognize with support from leaders that they revere, they too naturally fall into those footsteps and become leaders. And 
I have to say there's a couple that grabbed me early on in my career and said, hey, you will be a good leader. Just just put your toe in the water and I think you'll be great at what you do. Because if there were a bet at OHSU from faculty, staff, and students about leadership or involvement to the level that I have in my profession, uh, I would have lost that bet saying that I would have fallen into that path. Because <laughs> I was there to do one thing and that's be a, a PA. But uh, Meg Urim, I don't know if you know her. She was there in Arizona for many, many years. And she was the president of the Nevada Academy. And again, drew me in and said, you're the next president of the chapter. So this is what I, you and I are going to do till you get to that point. There was a couple of PAs in the state early on, even as I was a prospective student, that I was a member of the academy. And I suggest many students look into that as they're preparing to apply to PA programs because it's a wealth of knowledge and contacts and connections going through your state association. And uh, being involved as a student is what really led me to, I think, coming back and being a leader in, in, in the organization. So let's talk about your program. You are uh, a developing program still, as I understand. Is that correct? Correct. And I would say we're all, hopefully, always developing, yeah. no matter how many years you've been doing it. Yeah. And, and our previous guests who have been part of that, like Steph and Creighton, illuminated what that process is. So your students who attend your program while you're under provisional accreditation are still eligible to take the national certification exam. It's as if the program is up and running, but has not received full continuing accreditation at this point. And that's just part of the onboarding process with our accrediting body. Yes, you said it perfectly. Uh, it is, I, I think RPA could look at those statuses of accreditation and perhaps change the wording because it is confusing to anyone who's not actually in PA education because the concept of provisional is, is somewhat as if you're not ready to accept students yet. And uh, provisional is a status, as I tell students, of an accredited program. So it's an accredited program with this status. Very good. So how long is your program and, and what would you love to tell applicants about your program? Sure. Uh, we're a small program. So that's one of the things I think uh, that we're highlighting is that 24 students we accept every year and we are 25 months long. Uh, we actually initially were planned to be 27 and with some advice from mentors, they said the long view are doesn't necessarily mean it's a better educational program, but find where the amount of time needed to deliver what you want and minimize the time that the students have to be there. It is a tricky game of how long is perfect. And I have to say, I'm not sure 25 is the right number, but for us, it's working. The, uh, the program's in a public institution, School of Medicine. It's the first PA program in the state of Nevada in a public institution. The only other program is a private institution, Toro University in Las Vegas. So a, a great thing about Nevada is that we have two PA programs that don't necessarily compete in each other's backyards because Las Vegas and Reno are geographically quite distant. Sure. But uh, we work together as a private and a public program to serve the needs of the state. Other things about the program uh, I think is important is that both Ruth and Ted are admissions-driven program directors. And so I drank that Kool-Aid, if you will, and believe that that is the foundation of any program, uh, the success of the program and the success of the graduate. So understanding who is the right student for this program 
I always, and it's a lesson I learned from the military, transitioning from the military life to the civilian life, is that when students are interviewing or looking at programs, they should be assessing if that program is a best fit for them. Not if they can get in, not if it's close to home, but it really doesn't meet their needs because if it doesn't, then it's a miserable 25 months for everyone involved. I couldn't agree more. Uh, one of the things about being a small program is, again, we're nimble and a newer program is that we listen to our students and we value their input as how the program evolves and develops. Uh, I think some students feel as newer programs are not quality, uh, and I would disagree. Now, some programs do struggle early on to deliver the high pants pass rates, but uh, I think that's a, it's a, it's a matter of uh, one, the pants itself changing, the environment of education changing, and uh, new programs working out the kinks. But students who contribute, and as a person who was part of an initial program, there's no greater joy to know that you actually created the program along with the faculty and staff. And, and you can speak to that from lived experience, which is super cool for you, I would imagine. It's a story that does provide to the interviewees when they come to campus a little confidence that uh, I, I may know a little bit what I'm doing, even though my experience in PA education is relatively limited to others. But uh, understanding how to put together a program and deliver what the students are looking for, uh, that is the part where I'm committed to that and they see that. And hopefully our graduates would agree with that. And Brian, it sounds like you very much believe in a partnership model where those students that are what we have, would have called in the military uh, plank owners for a squadron or for a ship, um, the people that that jump in in the first few classes are really partners in helping to craft the clay into something that's special. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I believe that if you're looking for a plug-and-play educational experience, that's probably we're not going to be able to provide that to you. We want you actively engaged, not only in the program development, but your learning, because that's where you're going to have the stickiness of your education, because it wasn't something you sat down and read and regurgitated on a test. You lived it. And I think your patients deserve, all patients deserve, that level of commitment to your education that goes lifelong in the profession. Sure. And, and the program is located up in Reno, which is in the northern northwestern part of the state of Nevada, near the Sierra Nevada mountains. So do you find that a lot of your students are coming from in-state to head to that beautiful part of the state? Or are you getting kind of a good mix of both out-of-state and in-state applicants? Our mission is to serve the needs of the state of Nevada. So we definitely give preference to Nevada residents or those who have connections to Nevada one way or another. So our student body reflects that uh, mission statement. Not that we don't accept or don't want uh, students from outside of Nevada, because I think it's important to actually have that geographic diversity in, in, in experiences come to a classroom. But uh, our, our program is primarily made up of those who are connected to Nevada in some way or another. And then others that convince us, just like I did many years ago, of why they should select them to be part of our program. Sure. Sure. And as you look at the aspects of your program that you've crafted so far, what would you say are some of those unique things that kind of bring students towards you? 
obviously the first thing is, is that if they're connected to the university, they understand it. So we get a lot of students interested from the university undergraduate pathway. The other thing is that it is a public school of medicine and its mission again is to serve the needs. So that service component is extremely valuable to some applicants. Uh, the other thing is the size of our program. I think we hear that from students very often. You're putting 24 students in a room is a quite a different dynamic than it is 70 or 100 students in a room. Uh, and I, I tell students, I was a class of 11, so can you imagine not only were we did we know each other, we knew what each other smelled like. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So, and, and the program is how many months didactic and how many months clinical rotations? Sure, it's split 12 didactic, 13, uh, excuse me, it's reverse of that. It's uh, 13 of didactic and 12 of clinical. And we have a month there that there is preparation for clinical. So, in, and it really becomes 12 and 12 with a month of clinical preparation that we utilize that time to not only uh, in, onboard the new class, but also the graduating class and then the transitioning class. Okay, excellent. And given your rural health experiences, do you have a particular focus on rural health since Nevada is a fairly rural state? Absolutely. We, we definitely focus on primary care is our mission. Not that we don't recognize that students go into other specialties, but we want them to have that foundation of primary care. Uh, we're definitely committed to rural underserved communities. In fact, we actually have a rotation that is in a rural underserved or medically underserved population, we call it. And I tell students, that doesn't mean you need to be in a one-room shack in the middle of Nevada. It could be downtown Las Vegas. Uh, I think the metropolitan areas have tremendous underserved populations, and uh, we, we want to make sure students recognize that. Wonderful. So your leadership experiences have certainly helped you with this startup. What do you see as the biggest challenge in the state of Nevada in the future for PAs? That's a great question, and I'm sure it's a question all of us think about in our own backyards. I think the, the greatest challenge is the evolution of the profession. At one point in time, it was about being excellent at your craft, going in and being excellent at providing medicine to your patients. We've evolved, and as a profession, part of that evolution is having self-determination, self-governance, and I think that's where the challenge is, is training students in the short amount of time that we have to be excellent in medicine, but also recognizing that they're going to have to be equally excellent as a professional if the profession is going to continue to go in a direction that I believe it should, which is self-determining and self-governing. So does that change how you look at applicants and what you're looking for them to have experience before they get into your program? Absolutely. Uh, I, as I say, with technology and uh, medicine now change, I think when I was in school, they said that medical knowledge doubled every five years and then it went to two years. And now I think I last read it was 73 days medical knowledge doubles. <laughs> and that's oh scary, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's super scary to think that we're responsible to provide that much information to make them competent, safe practitioners. But equally, as you mentioned, uh, teaching them to be a professional in an environment that 
has not been super friendly in recent past and that just demanding what you want is not necessarily the way you're going to get it. And so you, you have to be crafty in how you address those challenges. But if you're not even in the room or at the table, your voice is never going to be heard. So you have to, uh, as I did as a practicing PA in surgery, you got to elbow up to the table. And if you don't elbow up, you'll be in the back forever. So I tell students, you need to elbow up to the professional leadership tables because that's where the conversation starts. And that's where you can represent the profession of saying, oh, this is actually a very articulate, smart, contributing member of our team. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, I imagine your experience in leadership at, at health systems lends itself to the conversations you're having with your students about how to navigate that world of, of employment and establishing yourself as a professional in a health system or hospital. Absolutely. I, I think I lean on my experiences in the business world, the startup world, of recognizing that it's a eat or be eaten place. And to some degree, that's how it is currently in the PA profession, along with some of our colleagues out there, is that you're either going to be the person who's moving the profession forward, or you're going to be contributing to the lack of movement moving forward. And I think you need some skills and, and, and knowledge to be effective at that. So Brian, where along the, the spectrum of accreditation is your program currently? How many classes have you uh, matriculated so far? How many have graduated? How are things going so far for you? Uh, it's been a bumpy road to be completely honest, uh, but I think it's been very beneficial, a uh, bumpy road to uh, solidify what we want as a program. So we are entering our fifth cohort this summer. We will graduate our third class in July. Our provisional was pushed out further in terms of we were supposed to have our final provisional site visit this May. And due to COVID and a variety of other reasons, programmatic and personal, we requested an extension. So we'll actually have our final site visit next spring which I think is an advantage because we can demonstrate to RPA with more data and more information fits to really pass the test of their rigor of are we a quality program uh, deserving of continuing. Yeah. I, and I think, yeah, I just went through the accreditation provisional conference that's required of all new programs last weekend. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's interesting. They're really focused on, ensuring that programs can self-manage. And so you're right. I think having more data and more analysis and more action plans coming out of that data to demonstrate that you are nimble on your feet when things shift in the winds like they so often do um, can only benefit you in, in the long run for, for that continuing accreditation status. So that, that's great. What, what have you enjoyed the most about the experience so far? Um, the whole PA education experience or the program director? Uh, the program director. Uh, that's a great question too, because I have to remind myself often what I enjoy about it, because it often <laughs> is a tough job that you are managing many of the things that you didn't think was going to be part of the job. So uh, it is a human resource primary job. I uh, make sure that faculty and staff are taken care of and they receive what they need to do their job effectively. Uh, and that's tough because as you grow as a program, you have different dynamics as people are added to the chemistry. 
So I, I, um, I relish that role and I think I'm good at that role, but it is one of those things that uh, sometimes is very tasking. What I enjoy the most, however, is getting into the classroom and the labs with the students. My wife is a retired uh, elementary school principal. And the lesson I took from her was she said many times she sat in her office just frustrated with her job. And what she learned was to pick up her laptop, go sit in a classroom and do her work there, which gave her the meaning for those things that were frustrating her. It really connected the dots. And I do that. Uh, anytime I'm frustrated about the operational aspects of my job, I go back and focus on what does this mean to the student? Yeah, I think that's really, really wise advice on her part. I think that it's so easy to isolate yourself in the program director office and get wrapped up in, you know, it, it, the job is challenging enough in terms of the HR components that you talked about and ensuring that people are, life happens, right? And people sure. people have challenges that they have to navigate. And sometimes that means you have to find people to replace them, which is not an easy thing, I would imagine, in a smaller setting like Reno as compared to LA or something like that. Add on to that, you're the middle person between the upper management and the team. You're the chief advocate for the program, for budgets, for resources, for rotation sites. And it's just, it, it would be far easier to hide in your office than to get out. So I, I agree with you. I think the students, for me, at least when I was at USC, the students breathed life into my soul. And not that the faculty or staff took that life away, but they just remind you how incredible an opportunity it is to be able to take somebody that has limited medical knowledge and professional knowledge and guide them through the territory of PA education, and then uh, watch them graduate with confidence as they head out into the world and, and become a colleague of yours. So that, that's cool. What a great, great way to look at it. Yes, I, it's been helpful in many instances where I, I need that, that energy from the students to do my job and do it well and wake up and come back and do it again the next day. <laughs> You, you brought up a good point uh, that I forgot to mention was about budget. One of the unique and I think highlights of our program that I think strengthened us as a program is that in a public institution, we created our program as being self-funded. So we do not use any state dollars, thus not tied to the politics that are associated with that. And I run it and built it as a business. And I think that has shown to be very wise when we went through the pandemic with budget cuts. Our budget remained flat and we were able to weather all those challenges uh, simply because the structure of the program financially was that as long as we have graduate or students applying and students sitting in seats, then we can continue to deliver what they expect. Uh, and part of the 24 number was derived simply from a budgetary perspective. I wanted the fewest students that I could support financially. And 24 was the number that fit that budget model. That's, that's a great, great opportunity for you. Uh, congratulations on navigating it that way. Thank you. It's uh, one of those things that's also difficult in a public institution because everything is talked on the concept of state dollars. And uh, I always have to remind everyone from the president down that yes, it applies, but it doesn't directly apply to what we're doing here in the program. And uh, 
I, I get many inquiries from other units in the university that want to replicate what we've done because it is so protective of their ability to deliver the, the education in their units and not be jeopardized by legislators making decisions. Yeah. I would be remiss, Brian, if I didn't circle back to what you were saying about uh, self-governance. Uh, I, I'd love for you to expand upon your thoughts just a little bit related to the future of the profession and where you think it should fit and why. I, I think a lot of our listeners, uh, you know, I've heard from physicians who are very uncomfortable with the uh, physician associate movement. Uh, I've heard from uh, some who are very comfortable with it because they have really collaborative relationships with PAs. But, but I think you know, change is always uncomfortable for people. Um, so maybe help our audience understand because I would imagine for future applicants, um, these are big changes coming down the pike for us. So uh, maybe can you can you enlighten us a little bit more from your leadership stance on where the profession should be going with self governance? Yes, and I'm not sure I'm the person to tell everyone where it should be going, but I certainly have strong opinions and beliefs, and I'm nearing the end of my career, so I, my skin is a little thinner in this game, but I'm still passionate about where the profession could go, and I would define it as opposed to should go. It's more of where it could go, and it's sure. really up to our applicants and graduates and young PAs. And I just read a statistic the other day, I think it said less than 13% of practicing PAs um, are between the ages 50 and 59 and 8% are 60 or older. So this is a young profession. And it's up to them to determine where they want it to go. And I would hope that they listen to those of us who have been around for a while for guidance in perhaps uh, to avoid some of the missteps that we have experienced. But where it could go is, I think it could go in the way is, I've always said, if we are truly going to call ourselves a profession, we need the ability to self-regulate. That's a fundamental characteristic of professionalism. Uh, also, that if our patients and the public are going to trust us as a profession, we need to have that self-governance and be able to say, we're responsible for what we do. And we also are the person solely responsible for when we do things wrong. And I find that physicians and our partners, which again, delivering medicine is a team sport, no matter what your degree is. And if you are really practicing in isolation, then let me know so I can avoid coming to see you because yeah. really we all rely on each other in this day and age to, to deliver high quality care. But it, it, again, if we're unable to be responsible for all of our actions and not have some of that responsibility fall on another profession, uh, I think then we, we fall into the trap of saying we're not a profession, we're not responsible. The, the supervising physician's responsible. And I always remind everyone that no, it, it, yes, right now, legally, they're both responsible, but it should be the person who's making the decisions at the time who is responsible for those decisions. Uh, it's a really interesting point because if you think about it, we always have the option to refer to a physician colleague or to seek an expert's opinion on a case that we're struggling with rather than try to cowboy it ourselves. So I think that there is a, a strong argument to be, to be made for what you're saying. Right. So simply the decision 
to refer or not refer is a, a significant professional decision. And too often early in my career, I would hear things like, well, just go have the physician see the patient. Don't worry about it. You're just a PA. And it really bothered me in that, well, if that's the case, then what am I doing here? I can tell you a brief story. I worked in the emergency room. Uh, and for any of those who work with a group of physicians trying to mirror your practice style with theirs, it's hard enough when you do it one-to-one. But when there are 15 different practice styles, uh, I found myself looking at the physician on shift and just said, why don't you just see the patient and tell me what to do? Because I not sure what you want me to do different from your colleague who is on the last shift. And uh, I tell students working with physicians and teams, and part of that is, is assimilating your practice style into that team. So it's a give and take relationship, but if you want me to be uh, part of the team as a contributing factor, then I need to have some autonomy to be able to do that and be responsible for it as well. Of course. And, and at the core of that is building a trust account with your colleagues. But I would imagine, ha- you know, I was an internal medicine and family medicine PA. So for me, there was a smaller number of people to do that. It was much easier to build that trust account when you have 15 docs that are coming in and out of the ER over the course of a month. That's a little bit more challenging. Brian, thank you so much for being with us today. We, we always ask our guests if there's anything else they're hoping to share with our listeners before we sign off. Is there anything you were hoping that we'd cover today? Um, The the one thought that I guess I would share here is that, although, as I mentioned earlier, that medical knowledge is changing rapidly and that we heavily rely on data-driven decisions, I remind students that um, it's really about the end of one, and that one is the patient. And statistics are for averages, but they will likely never apply to that end of one in the same fashion as it does to a larger body. And don't forget that, although you're making decisions based on a a pool of knowledge, you've got to apply that to an individual. And it's important to remember that, that you're treating an individual and uh, from, from forgetting that is to me, the worst thing you can do for your patient. And then finally, uh, again, information and communication is the foundation for healthcare. And I believe that students' experiences are being diluted in that area and the skill sets, and they're more focused on coming up with the correct answer and losing the ability to actually talk with patients, which is ultimately the majority of what PAs deliver is building trust in a bond with their patients. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where the arguments for artificial intelligence are in our favor because at this point it's too hard for a computer to develop the relational aspects that help us build that trust with the patient. So um, thank you so much, Brian, for your time today. I think, uh, you know, I'm really excited to watch your program grow and, uh, you know, very jealous of your beautiful surroundings. I'm sure it's uh, nice and cool up there right now and, and uh, uh, look forward to seeing you in the future in the PA profession as well at, at leading on the education side. Um, and uh, uh, again, can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your story. Thank you so much and appreciate all that you're doing for our prospective students and future leaders of this profession. I believe that uh, you've, you've stepped into something that should be 
should have been done a long time ago. And uh, students who are listening or prospective students who are listening to this should be sending you lots of thank yous and kudos. For <laughs> uh, no thank yous are necessary. It's just, uh, it's been fun. Like you, we have learned so much. I mean, I've been a PA for 26 years and I have learned so much by doing these interviews and, and it's just been really rich and rewarding for me and for my colleague, Stephanie. So uh, again, thanks for participating. Well, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Brian Law, for taking time to share his insights about his program at the University of Nevada, Reno, about the future of the profession, and about what makes applicants shine in their application process. Tune in next week as we speak with Ms. Karen Hills, who is the Chief of Educational Development for the Physician Assistant Education Association. Karen is a professor emeritus from the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at Duke University School of Medicine. She is a past president of PAEA, and she has significant experience in developing curricula, both for her PA schools and for the profession at large. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Arizona.